Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show, a show in which we get a chance to spend some time talking to extremely insightful people and uh, pick their brains a bit. I'm your host Aditya, and along with me, I also have Niranjana, who is making her third appearance on Point Blank now. Hi, everyone. I get a feeling that you like doing this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so the guest um, we have on Point Blank today is a recipient of the Pravasi Bharatiya Samman from President of India, and also someone who has been. appointed to prime minister's global advisory council of overseas indians in addition he has received one of australia's highest honors when he was appointed an officer of the order of australia in 2000 he was also appointed honorary sydney ambassador to india by the new south wales government as the chairman of the national multicultural advisory council he has advised the australian prime minister and the minister for immigration and multicultural affairs from 1996 up until 2002 He has been the national chairman of Australia India Business Council in 2000, a business association that focuses totally on promoting stronger business links between Australia and India, and is currently the chairman emeritus of the organisation. And currently, he is an advisor to Tata Consultancy Services in Australia. Born in India, having spent a major part of his life in Australia, and having worked on building Indo-Australian ties both on the government and business level. I can think of no one better to shed light on the current state of affairs between the two countries. We have with us uh, Mr. Neville Roach. Welcome, Neville. Thank you. Good to be with you. So, Neville, you travelled to Australia, Adelaide, to be specific. Uh, you know, working on a business assignment for New India Assurance Company, and this was back in 1960. I believe there weren't a lot of Indians back then in Australia. Well, certainly in Adelaide, uh, I went to actually in 1963. I initially went to Sydney, but uh, in Adelaide there were. We were told there were twenty-six Indians. Oh, really? It's <laughs> uh, counting men, women, and children. <laughs> so yes, there were very few Indians at the time. But people might might have been very curious to know who you know where are Indians coming from? What is India like? Yes, I mean the interesting thing was uh, Australia at that time had a white Australia policy, mm-hmm. but uh, there was no sense of that for for people who came into Australia. There was certainly discrimination against indigenous people, which continues to be a major problem in Australia, but. Uh, Indians in particular, or we in particular, found that people were very welcoming, very affectionate, had an affectionate uh, kind of feeling for for India, a bit romantic, uh, really? you know, colonial in some senses, not in a negative sense. But uh, the reality was, yes, it did have a white Australia policy. But for them, many of us, we, my wife and I, were the first non-white person that many of them had met, mm. and certainly uh, Gladys who. Then did and still does wear the sari most of the time. Well, for most people, that was the first time they'd seen a sari-clad <laughs> woman, and they were quite impressed. So you didn't start a fashion trend out there, no, did you? <laughs> India has now changed from just another developing country to a potential superpower. So how has the perception of India and Australia changed? I think the there's growing uh, respect uh, for for India. There's growing recognition of India's importance. I mean, India has now become uh, Australia's fourth largest uh, merchandise export destination, replacing the United States in, in that position. Uh, we have a growing number of migrants coming from India, and uh, increasingly overseas students. I know there are issues there right now, but the, it is still a very favoured destination. So, my view is that Australia, Australia needs India far more than India needs Australia. And not just because it's a market, but in my view, the primary reason why Australia needs to treat India with great importance is that India is becoming 
one of our biggest sources of the most valuable resource that any country needs, and that's human resources. And skilled human resources, which Australia is always in short supply of, is increasingly going to come from India. So we want to attract the best and brightest people like you, or even <laughs> a friend here. But, uh, but you know, if you're going to do that, there needs to be a lot of goodwill towards Australia and, and a positive image. So that's uh, important. So I think Australia needs to play pays even more attention to India than it's doing. But it is taking India very seriously. Neville, you have been involved actively with um, organizations that deal with multiculturalism. And, and you yourself mentioned White Australia policy a couple of times now. There's a book called White Australia um, to Bumera, the story of Australian immigration, which which basically in which the author is saying that Australia's immigration policy has an emphasis on, on, on control rather than care. Uh, how much would you agree with that? I think that that is seriously unfair, seriously unfair. Australia has transformed itself from, uh, at the end of the Second World War, 94% of Australians were either from Britain or Ireland, or a mix of those. Uh, you couldn't get a more monocultural you know, country than that. And then immediately after the war, they started accepting large-scale immigration from Europe, non-English speaking background Europe, refugees and others. I think they ex- accepted one or two million in a matter of a few years on top of a, of a population that was only six or seven million. Yeah. Unbelievable growth. There was challenges there because their people didn't speak English, they had to learn English, they had accents, a whole lot. But the community was in fact absorbing, you know, a massive number, significant change in the society. And then in 66, uh, the policy, the white Australia policy was gradually dismantled. Uh, and uh, then we took in a large number of Indo-Chinese, uh, after the war there. Of 200 or 300,000 refugees were taken in, again a massive number. And then gradually, so today, we've got the highest uh, immigration intake that, that we've ever had. So, so uh, on an annual basis. Now, there has been throughout that process a significant, uh, the way it works is you have an immigration policy, which is a mixture of attracting people mm-hmm. and making sure that, you know, that people who do not meet criteria do not come, that's, that's, which every country has. But it also has a very strong settlement policy, which is actually facilities available, hands-on help, help desks, and all of those things for people who have arrived to help them to settle in. Of course, there's much less of that today than there was before because there are so many communities now, in large numbers. I mean, Indians, they're probably about 300,000 plus perhaps 100,000 students and temporary students. It's a massive number from, you know, what I talked about earlier. So there's always been a strong settlement policy. There have been things like the Good Neighbor Council. Some of these things have gradually outlived their need because people think today, you know, everyone knows how to handle diversity. Right. And that the people who come in will always have a good network from their own community and so on. But there are new communities from Sudan, Somalia, and all that who need that sort of help as well. So I, I think it's not, not fair to say that Australia doesn't uh, nurture or take care. It offers, you know, immediate access to social security, immediate access to a whole lot of services. Um, so it is very welcoming, I think, and, and it does try to look after people. Having said that, that you know, there are problems, particularly recent problems that right. we need to be we need to be honest about. So what is what is happening about uh, you know? It's a it's a fairly complex question. I mean, one of the sad things about it is that uh, it appears that, that that in India the assumption is that that every attack is racist, mm-hmm. and the way the Australians are reacting in the language they're using, you could think that they are claiming that, that every attack is opportunistic. Yeah. In other words, there is no racism involved or is only racism involved. 
The reality is, of course, as you would expect, it's, it's clearly got to have elements of both and other causes as well. And I wish both sides started acknowledging that there'd be more dialogue. At present, they're talking at each other and no one's listening. So it's very hard for me, I mean, because I'm very much Indian, as you can see, I hope, and, and very much Australian, and I feel very hurt that these two, you know, my, my national parentage, one of adoption and one of birth, that there is this very divisive debate taking place, and 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 that's not doing any good to either side. I think not doing very good any good to the Indian community in Australia. The problem arose because there's been a surge of students coming into Australia. I think within two years, the number of Indian students in Australia grow from forty thousand to a hundred thousand. That's a massive growth. Thing. So there, the impact, particularly in Melbourne, where the most have seemed to have gone is that you really literally see Indians everywhere. The students, you know, on the So there is a visibility issue there. But more important than that, it's the nature of the courses to which they are coming. Australia has, as I've said before, a serious skill shortage. We'll always have that. And the previous government, and I'm biased, uh, I'm a strong supporter of the Labour government, but the previous government uh, decided that it would cut budgets to education. Not, not a very smart thing to do in the middle of a boom. And after 10 years or so, the shortages just became incredibly bad. Everything was in short supply. The economy continued to boom, but so it's a services economy, 85% services. So your shortages of, of, of hairdressers, chefs, and those are the things that I mentioned a lot. And they decided, well, some, some brilliant bureaucrat must have said, well, if we can get them to come here as overseas students, we can earn a lot of foreign exchange and, and all of this mm. very adding to the economy. And we are quite happy for them to stay having achieved a qualification. Right. And then this helps solve our skill shortages as well. Uh, in that process and happening so rapidly, uh, the, the normal controls and monitoring just disappeared. And so a large number of private colleges have been set up, which are just fronts for, for immigration, basically. I mean, again, the point needs to be made that Australia does say if you get qualified as a hairdresser, you can live in Australia. You know, immigration policy is a very positive, liberal, welcoming policy. So that's also forgotten in the process. Why are these students there? Many of them there are not to study. They are there actually to get the immigration. And, and Australia has no problem with that. Mm. I think the Indian government is a bit concerned that people are going all the way there, you know, just to, to do what he called, what Mr. Krishna called exactly the frivolous courses. Yeah. Yeah. Frivolous, that's right. Yeah. But the problem is that, is that this number and that that demand is created by the, the new sector, the private sector. And I have to say, many of them are of Indian origin. And quite large, you know, it's very easy to see why it would be like that. Indians can most easily exploit Indians. Chinese can most easily exploit Chinese, Koreans, Korean, mm -hmm. and so on. So the, these guys have set these institutions up of great dubious merit. They have agents in India. They attract people. The word goes around the, the towns, cities, villages. Uh, Punjab and Haryana are the main source of attraction. And then you have these problems that they arrive there because you're talking about trade-related courses, there are virtually no prerequisites. So it is an absolute and I do not in any way criticize the people, you know, Australians are an egalitarian society. We really feel equal. We feel uncomfortable if you're not called by our first name. And the yeah. Prime Minister gets upset if I call him by his first name, I would still call him by his first name. So that's the way it is. So, so having people who do hairdressing or cooking or whatever trade related courses, it's a totally honorable thing to do. So these people are, are very welcome. The problem is that most of them don't want to do those courses. 
this, they get exploited that way because it, the providers know that. So they have a restaurant on the ground floor and you have a college, catering college a on the first floor. institute. Upstairs. Yeah, or an institute, yeah. And they may or may not have equipment, they may or may not have lectures, they, they make those kids work downstairs in the restaurant for next to nothing because they have to get work experience. Right. They then charge them to give them a certificate, they charge them to give them a work experience certificate. There's a whole lot of exploitation taking place. And so these people are very short of money. Uh, the parents or families have collected money to send them there. So they work several jobs at a time. Many of them, well, not all of them, but obviously many genuine, I hope most are genuine. And then they, they, they end up, there are no facilities available near the universities. They mainly congregate together. They live, some cases, even tend to a room or something. I've heard anecdotal evidence, but certainly crowded accommodation far from the city center because that's cheaper. They work three or four jobs, even though they're supposed to work only 20 hours a week. So now they're traveling late at night. They get home at one o'clock. They're on their own and, and it's a lonely place. They've got right. iPod, uh, you know, earplugs in their ears. They're clearly exuding a sense that these people mm. have some money and so on. They, some of them carry their valuables on them because they're living with too many people so they don't feel safe and leaving it where they are. So they, that kind of situation is definitely uh, causing uh, people to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. That's a significant element in my view of the attacks. It's still inexcusable, unquestionable. Authorities have still got to take it seriously and so on. But they may not, they may not be racist. Having said that though, they, given the numbers that people are talking about, you know, it would be absurd to, to say that there's no racism involved. Yeah. And, and even an opportunistic crime can very rapidly degenerate into a racist, uh, you know, argument because, you know, people defend themselves and, and or get angry and abuse yeah. the person who's attacking them. Then the first thing that an attacker would do is to look at what's different about you, you know. You're, you're, you're Indian, you're brown, you're black, you're tall, you're thin. It happens here. And the number of nicknames that people used to have in, in India in my time reflected, you know, whether they were lame or blind. Or, <laughs> that's what we call them, you know. So that's what is happening. And then, yes, it, it, it degenerates into racism. But the numbers explosion, I think, definitely has caused some stress. Any, anything that happens suddenly is it takes a society you know, a chance to, a bit of time to adjust to it. Yeah. And it also takes the newcomers a bit of time to adjust. So, so it is a bad situation. The, num- uh, the, the main problem, I think, though, is, is that the Australian government uh, and the local police authorities seem to me to be too anxious to immediately say it's not racist. My advice to them is, you know, just why do you have to say that? You know, you just say we are studying this, we are looking at it, we're not ruling out any possibilities. Mm. We're going to investigate it thoroughly. And we are not going to comment on individual incidents until the investigation is complete. Yeah. That is interfering with the, the process. It will, it's, a, it's, a, it's the wrong thing to do. Right? Yeah. Because invariably, I mean, there was one person who was, whose burnt out body was found. Yeah. It's almost certain that it was people that he had employed or, or friends he was partying with. It's almost certain that that's the case. Absolutely nothing to do with race. That yeah. doesn't get reported on in any significant way. It doesn't. In India. So, but because you get this knee-jerk reaction, then the immediate reaction then is, oh, these guys are in denial. So they must be hiding something. And that's a bad strategy. So that's, and they haven't published official statistics. To know whether Indians are being singled out or not, it would be good to know 
2009, how many attacks were there on Indian students, well, or Indians, Indians generally, because you can't distinguish a student from any other young yes. person. Uh, how many were there relative to that population? So it was three or four hundred thousand, how many were there? Uh, how many were there for the general population? So yeah, if Indians are two percent and the crimes are less than two percent, then, then they, I'm you'd say perhaps it isn't racist, it's just part of a, a law and order situation. Then what about Chinese students or Chinese communities? What are their ratios? And I've been urging them to publish those statistics. Now, something tells me that they are following an old policy or a strategy, tactics even, that you don't acknowledge or you avoid acknowledge racism for fear of retaliation and escalation. And again, because of the way they've been acting and because from here no one's listening, that is not fully understood. You know, you, they, are, they have got a kind of, you know, Australia is a multicultural society. The last thing they want is for communities to be at war with each other. So the, part of the reason for the reluctance to acknowledge racism may well be that. But my view is that it has now gone so far and, and the judgment is being made that this is all purely racist. The only way to diffuse it is to publish the statistics and publish the trends. You know, are there much fewer now than there were, say, six months ago, which is what I'm almost sure is the case. You know, the impression, again, you get from newspapers or the television here now is that it's suddenly escalated now. And we have an Indian student leader there who has his own ambitions. And, and he talks, there have been 10,000 attacks, he says. <laughs> How You know, it's an absurd proposition. We have 10,000 attacks in a community of 400,000 people. I mean, each of us would be living with somebody who had been attacked or had been attacked ourselves. It just isn't happening like that. Just on the good side, in today's paper, there's a, again, uh, they talk about India going up from a very low position to still a relatively low, but a much better position on, on the world index of, of happiness or quality of life and so on. India's moved to number 88, I think. Mm. Australia is number two. And safety is one of the biggest single measurements of that. It is number two. <laughs> you know, that is a fact. It is a much safer, you know, when someone said there it's safer, they are safer here than in Australia, than in India. That policeman should never have said anything like that. That's a it's an irrelevant thing. So there's a lot of people who are not trained to handle the media, they, they're under pressure, they, they, they say silly things. So this whole thing needs to be diffused. The two governments need to work together much more. But I think the next step is really for the Australian government yeah, and, to, and to start diffusing it by giving the facts. And if the numbers show that there is an excessive number, then they, they have to, they've got a, an issue to resolve, a bigger issue to resolve. There is an issue to resolve anyway. What do you think the Indian government should be doing? I think by and large, I've been very impressed with the way the Indian government has been handling it. Uh, I, I was fortunate uh, to, to, to attend the inaugural meeting of the Manmohan Singh's uh, Global Advisory Council. And uh, he was there for the whole of the duration of the meeting. Uh, S.M. Krishna was there and Vaila uh, Ravi was also there, plus the departmental heads. And I felt upfront, you know, and I was given my time to say, you know, talk about situations in Australia and how Australia and India might, you know, help each other more and, and NRIs in Australia could be looked after better or whatever. And I have to say, their reaction was that they, they were very understanding of the situation. And if you listen to the things that, that uh, they, they have reacted a bit more in the last two or three days because somebody there has talked about being safer in Australia than in India. So they have reacted. And while well, I already said, I think that, that these two petty officers or whatever, they, they should not be even allowed to, to, to comment. Yeah. But um, SM Krishna came to Australia. He, at the end of it, he said, look, we don't believe Australia is a racist country. We actually use those words. They've never tried to suggest that. They, or, and they say all they want is security and safety of its citizens. 
on the Australian side, there needs to be less denial. You know, just, I mean, there's no point in denying. And why? What is wrong in saying that that, that Australia still has its share of racism? I mean, you know, we've got a track record going back to the treatment of indigenous people and the white Australia policy. We've got that all behind us. Not all the indigenous issue still needs a, a long way to go, but but it's still it's still it's improving. Still they weren't even counted as human beings. I mean, until 1967. So you know, they're treated and they have a lot of things and money being spent on them. They're still challenged in terms of cultural uh, differences. But uh, but you know, having said that, we should, if we say yes, some of it has to you know must be racism or might be racism, and we've got an open mind. We're analyzing the numbers and so on. Uh, then you can say, but you know, you need to know we've transformed ourselves from a white Australia policy to the most multicultural society in the world and uh, with welfare and safety and all of, of, of our multicultural citizens, we could argue, is much better than in the United States, the UK and perhaps even Canada. It's interesting that uh, you didn't mention uh, Mr. Tharoor attending the meeting. He was on our podcast as well. No, so Mr. Tharoor did not attend the meeting because... When he became Minister of State, he, uh, when he stood for elections, he ceased to be a Pravasi Bharatiya. So he's not an overseas Indian. Oh, okay. Plus he's in, in the government and his minister, the external affairs minister, is on the council. Okay. But, yeah, the, I, I mean, I'm very proud when it happened, uh, despite Mr. Karur having his challenges with the media here as well. <laughs> but yeah, I think he's a great man and a brilliant writer. And, I've got, and uh, the notification I received was that because he, he left and I was appointed in his place. Really? So, so it's a significant brush with fame. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think India overreacted by issuing that uh, travel advice? No, I don't think so. I think, in fact, uh, that is entirely the right of a country when it's talking about the safety of its citizens. And there's no question that if you follow through the, the point that the Australian authorities seem to be making about that, is, that, that, you know, that opportunistic crime is involved, then what is your solution against opportunistic crime? It is to take more care. Yeah. You know, do not make yourself vulnerable. Do not travel on your own late at night going to a remote place. Don't, you know, as many of them even walk home because they want to save the money on the face. You know? so, yeah. so, so in telling them that, that you should be careful, which is all that the advisory has said, I think right. is an entirely reasonable thing to do. And, uh, and the Australian government has reacted very positively to that and they, because they, they issue travel advice all the time. I mean, uh, you know. But then this, this time it was a developing country which was issuing a travel advisory to a developed country. This is how the media uh, portrayed it, you know. But I think that's a challenge that all of us have, you know, including the people of India and myself as someone of Indian origin, is that we've got to stop making that distinction. Hmm. We've now got to recognize that, that all countries are important and the safety of all citizens are important. And if you're talking about state of development or importance globally, and India has no reason to believe that it cannot have views and express opinions uh, about other countries. It has every right to do that. It's one of the major powers. By my, by my calculation, you will see it as, as the sixth major power in the world. As, you know, the uranium decision or the nuclear decision did, I think, give India that kind of privileged position yeah. in, in the superpower league. So I think it's entirely fine and, and it was a good thing to do. I mean, basically... In that sense, the Indian government was acknowledging that some of the crime must be opportunistic or some of it can be prevented by taking more care. It's just like police advising us to have burglar alarms in our homes, or not to leave the doors open, you know, all of those things are what we do. 
Yeah, and, and therefore, and that helps reduce crime. They're fairly basic precautionary yeah, steps. Absolutely, and I don't think that anybody in India had any issue with that. In, in Australia, had any issue with that. You know, moving on, you are quite often invited uh, to talk at conferences, etc. And one of the and you you talk on a very interesting topic. Uh, you 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 talk about transforming Australia from a lucky country to a clever country. Yes. Now, what exactly do you mean by a lucky country and yeah. a clever country? I mean, the, the term lucky country was coined by by a, a, an author in Australia uh, who wrote a book called The Lucky Country. And what he was saying was that in, uh, Australia has has an abundance of resources. You know, has a small population. There's a lot of it's endowed with an inordinate amount of, of wealth. Okay. Uh, and it's massive. I mean, the mineral wealth of Australia is massive. It's got good climate uh, conditions. It's got you know, fertile soil. It's got a whole lot of. And 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 in a sense, that is he was questioning whether Australia was doing enough, you know, in terms of effort. So it was a kind of a wake up call to Australia. We better do more work harder. Yeah. Except uh, we can't keep relying on the lucky country all the time. Now, since then, the lucky country has become luckier because the mineral boom has been caused by China and now by India has, you know, showed kind of Australia had, didn't dip into recession at all in the crisis. The, the, the idea is a, a clever country is very much a nation that is, you know, focused on education, focused on research, focused on innovation, you know, achieving uh, much more from the wealth that it has rather than just getting it out of the ground and, and selling it. Having said that, though, Australia has a fantastic record as a lucky, as a, as a clever country. That's not known in, in India either. I think we've had now in 11 or 12 Nobel laureates. Right? That's a pretty big number. And one was for literature and all the others were for science or medicine. This is a phenomenon and that reflects. And, and one was only this year, so last, last year. So it does show that that is an ongoing tradition of, of innovation, of research, high quality capability. And that's something that is not fully recognized, I think, outside or even among Australians ourselves. We have, you know. and, and that aspect of the relationship, I think, it can be built where uh, there's much more research collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where, because India has big challenges in research. You probably know, I mean, the number of PhDs being turned out in India is trivial, in IT particularly so, uh, because my friends in Tata Consultancy Services and, and others pay them very well when they graduate, so they don't go on to do, as I'm sure you could go on to do a PhD, but you probably won't. And there's a lot of opportunity between Australia and India with, with Indian business funding, you know, students to continue on, on full pay. Coming out of it as an investment, you're going to benefit uh, significantly. But, uh, so that's part of, yeah, it's about the lucky, part, clever country. There's one school of thought that believes that for NRIs to contribute to our country, they need to come back. And there are several people who have actually done that. But of late, we've seen Indians rising in the international arena, with whether it's politics or sports or even business. So what would your advice be to young NRIs who are listening to this podcast? The, the, the one big thing that, uh, that I learned in Australia when we were advising the government on multiculturalism was that those things work or Prosperity of a country works because, particularly of a country like India and Australia, we are being strong democracies. So the fundamental strength of countries is human rights and democracy. And the important part of our democracy is that it allows individuals to make their own decisions. It doesn't prescribe. It doesn't say you have to come back or you have to stay away. It allows you to make the decision in your own way. 
And even and in Australia, for example, where there was a policy of assimilation, you know, as soon as you arrived, you had to forget where you came from. This is immediately after the war, the European migrant. So our definition now in multiculturalism is that people can assimilate, they can integrate, or they can choose to remain exactly the way they were, as they did you know, in their own time and, and in the manner in which they choose to do it. And that's because freedom and democracy is a bigger value than anything else. So the same thing should be applied to overseas Indians. You know, encourage them, move them, market to them as the government of India is doing and the state governments are doing. But absolutely don't insist on them coming back. I mean, whatever little bit I've achieved, I mean, it is, you know, I don't know, tenfold, hundredfold more than I would have achieved what I say on India. I don't think I would be able to have borne the intense competition of living and working in India. Uh, so, you know, the environment was an easier environment. It gave me an opportunity which I grabbed. And I hope that I'm adding more value to India as a result of staying there. Great. Those were the questions. But uh, one last question without which I can't end this podcast. Uh, when India plays Australia, do you wear blue or yellow? Uh, absolutely. As, as I keep saying in speeches in Australia, that before I became an Australian citizen, I checked and found that there was no reference to cricket in the citizenship oath. <laughs> so had there been one, then I think I might still not be an Australian citizen. So you're welcome to do it, and we do it. We do it in the crowds, we do it in the members' hands, and so on. And I've never wavered on that. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a cross to carry because the Indian team can let you down pretty badly. Oh, <laughs> At times, you build up your hopes, but it, it, recently it's getting more and more impressive. But no, there's no, no question about that. And certainly, when it comes to behavior, which is another big issue that caused close to a rupture in relations, the famous mm-hmm. Sydney test of the infamous. Yep. I was there for the for every day of it and uh, I was as angry as everybody else. And uh, so in that area, I think Australia and India should, the two cricket authorities should be working together intensely because they are the cricketing powers. That, they decide the future of cricket in the world. Mm-hmm. They've got to stop sledging. Not just say it's okay or it's just robust talk and it's not a racist comment, then it's okay. I think that's all absurd that that, that shouldn't mm. be stopped. Australia has the greatest responsibility because I think Australia were the, you know, the people who actually took it to a fine art. But India has a responsibility too. And retaliation, which has been a tactic that's been used as a way to get even, only escalates the issue. So I hope the two countries, you know, work together for the good of the game uh, and uh, may India keep winning. Great. On that thought, thanks a lot for your time once again. That's about it. If you have any comments on anything that has been discussed, you can log on to www.theindicast.com and uh, leave comments. Uh, that's about it. Bye-bye.